It certainly is an honor to be with you this morning. It is uh, my privilege always to get back up here as often as I can. I just live only maybe an hour and a half down in uh, northern San Diego County, and yet uh, even an hour and a half sometimes uh, is far enough not, not to come back as often as I'd like. So fortunately, over the last month of October, I've had three separate reasons to come up here. This is the third, and uh, I think it's probably the most significant because it's the greatest privilege that I have to speak to college students. And I'm not just saying that because you're college students, because for many years when I was at Grace Church, had the opportunity to lead college Bible studies down at USC, UCLA, and CSUN. And when I transitioned into more like grown-up ministry, you know, like in a fellowship group, one of the first things that struck me was that this is profoundly different in terms of how ministry works. And I thought about it for a long time, and this is what it boils down to, and I always say this when I talk to college students, I think the main difference between what I do now and what I did then is that now I deal with consequences Whereas in college ministry, you're still dealing with choices. And that's a profound difference. You are, at this stage in your life, making choices, lots of them, every day. And the choices that you're making right now are going to eventually translate into a life that will be defined by the consequences of the choices that you've made. And so now, when people tell you, this is the time to have fun and think the least about these important things, it's actually the time to think the most about them because things change quickly and you're in a world that is changing quickly. So uh, this is a super easy invitation for me to accept and so I want to thank uh, those who are responsible for uh, that invitation and, uh, and especially for uh, the new friendships that I've been able to develop, uh, including with the men sitting on the front row here. It is such an honor. Uh, last week when I came up, I actually met with one of your faculty. We had breakfast. It was Friday morning, and I thought, I've got just enough time to, to head to the gym before I go over to this other meeting. And so I head over there to LA Fitness, and um, I'm on the uh, machine where you work your lats. You know, you're pulling down the lat, pull-down machine. I can tell, you know, by looking at me, I do a lot of working out. I know that, so just, I'm just going to let that go. But here I am, I'm doing this, and, and as I'm pulling this thing down, I'm looking across the gym, and I recognize somebody that I was uh, friends with, a good friend, and so I put that machine down, and I walked over, and I greeted this person. We spoke for a little while, and, uh, you know, talking to people in the gym is kind of like an awkward place to get caught up, you know, because people are sweaty, and they're dressed funny, and they're like, I just want to be here to work out. So the conversation didn't go very long. I walked back over to my machine, and normally what I do is I, I grab onto that bar, and uh, I just let my body weight kind of carry it down gently to the seat. So all you do is you stand up, you hold that thing, and you just let yourself go, and you just gently go down to the seat. Well, evidently, between the time when I left and the time when I returned, somebody else had used the machine, and they left it with no weight whatsoever on it. <laughs> and so in the middle of the crowded gym during rush hour, I walk over to this machine, and I, I grab a hold of it, and I let myself go so that I can just lightly fall down onto the bench. Well, that is not what happened. I just let myself go, and I came careening down onto the bench, hit the bench, and then hit the floor. And now I'm lying on the floor holding the bar. 
and, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking it's amazing how many thoughts go through your head when something like that happens. And they're all going through at the same time. It's like your life flashing before your eyes, but, but it's not your life. It's, it's more just the fact that you're, you're thinking, I could get humiliated in so many different ways now. I'm actually thinking, I'm going to show up on YouTube. Like, I'm going to be one of those guys at the gym on YouTube. I know there's somebody right now watching the security tape. They're laughing hysterically, and they probably go to Masters. And this is going to get, and you're lying down and and you're thinking, what do I do? Do I just let the thing go? Because then it goes crashing down and everybody notices and you think, no, I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to get up. Well, listen, it's hard to get up without hands. I mean, you're swearing trying to get this thing up. And finally, I don't know what I did, but I got up there and I put the thing back. And at that moment, you've only got one choice. Play it cool. (laughs) And walk to another machine. (laughs) But listen, challenge with that whole deal was that you're never going to get stronger without that resistance, right? That's what I lost. There was no resistance. There was nothing pulling against me, and therefore there was no way for me to effectively exercise. And I give you that story, not not, not just to kind of break the ice and say something self-deprecating, which is what you're supposed to do in a new crowd, but because it actually is relevant to what I want to teach on this morning, because I do believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are, as a group of Christian students really facing the most amazing opportunity of any generation up until this point in America. You have now finally been given the opportunity to go into a world that no longer pretends to have any interest in what you believe. I mean, even 20 years ago when I was in college, the world still at least pretended to have some kind of interest in what I believed. There was still sort of this Christian veneer over a lot of stuff, and that's gone. In fact, it's been suggested there have been more changes in the last 50 years than in all the years since the Reformation. And there's probably been more change in the last 20 years than in the last 50 years, and it's only changing faster. And so what I'm doing is I'm speaking to a group of people being equipped to move into a world that is changing so fast that only people who are both nimble and well-trained are going to survive in. And so I take this really seriously. I'm excited to talk to a group of individuals who are making choices that are going to have a profound effect not only in their own lives, but in that of their family and in their world. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 6. I want to take a look at just a few verses this morning in this monumental section of the Gospel of John where Jesus essentially is giving a sermon. And people are responding to his sermon. And as you know, it's hard enough to preach someone else's sermon, and you shouldn't be doing that anyway, but much less trying to preach Jesus' sermon. I'm not going to try to stand up here and embellish it or make it better. What I'm going to do is dive into one section of it, and I'm going to try to explain it as best I can, because what I think that you have revealed to us here is probably one of the most effective tools that you're going to be able to use in evangelism. And if you're going to make a difference in the world, there's only one thing that's going to make a difference, and that is the gospel. Are we in agreement on that so far? Nothing else that you're learning is going to really make the ultimate eternal difference other than the gospel. Now, in preparation for our time this morning, I did pull up the previous chapel messages. I watched some live. I also listened to a few, listened to the excellent message that 
Dr. Abner Chow gave last uh, time you had chapel together. He preached on the doctrine of assurance. He was talking about how this was sort of a contrast. There is hope in that, in the light of the pressure of finals. And so I assume much of that is still going on. We'll continue the contrasting theme as well. So he, for example, taught on assurance. Here I'm going to talk on the assurance that God will call those whom he will preserve. We'll also provide a contrast in the fact that he is this intellectual powerhouse, and now we will bring in mediocrity. So the contrasting will continue. But especially as we look at this text, I want you to see that there is something here for each and every one of you as you move out and continue on engaging in your culture. It begins with the whole issue of communication. Jesus is doing the best he can on this human level to communicate truth to people. And you would think that if you were the Son of God, if you were that divine, incarnate, eternal, holy, sinless being that everything you said would be received with absolute confidence, wouldn't you? I mean, there are humans that are so intellectually superior that are these luminaries in their field that whatever they say, people just believe it simply because it comes from them. You would think that Jesus would be among that group. In fact, you would think that Jesus would put to shame everybody else and everything he said would be believed. People would throng to him just to hear what he has to say. And that didn't happen. Jesus, if he were to be evaluated upon the system that modern preachers are evaluated, would get a very low grade because his group isn't growing. As a matter of fact, they're shrinking, and they're shrinking at a rather rapid rate. They're not buying into it. And it's amazing because essentially they're saying to him all the time, we don't understand, we don't understand, we don't understand. If anybody knows how to explain something, it would have been the Son of God. It is not that they don't understand. They're in the same situation that you and I have been in during conversations or arguments where somebody keeps saying to you, I don't understand, but in reality, what are they saying? They're saying, I don't agree. I don't believe you. That's what the Son of God is facing. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I don't accept you. I don't want you. And Jesus is going to deal with it. The first thing I want you to see is in verse 60 of John chapter 6. And I've just called this the offensive message. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen? Say, heard what? Heard the previous part of the sermon. The previous part of the sermon, Jesus was saying things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And they're listening to this, and even though they understand it's metaphorical, they understand he is not calling them to cannibalism, but still, they say, this is really hard. I don't want if I believe this. And what's amazing is that it's not just a small group of people. It's not just one or two. This is the majority opinion. The vast majority of people that were listening to Jesus at this time, the ones called disciples, the ones called learners, weren't learning. In fact, they were rejecting. And they were saying to him that this is a hard saying. The word hard there, it means to be dried out, stiff, stubborn, unyielding describing somebody or something that will not budge, bend, or submit. It is considered to be something unyieldingly harsh. That's the answer. They say, we don't want to believe what you're saying because, frankly, 
it's way too harsh. And they explain in their saying that, that there are really three types of people. There are three types of people. There are those who are the steady and the focused few that are mature and determined. They are the ones that will follow Jesus no matter what. But that is not what you see here. What you see here is really one of the other two categories, I think. The other two categories would be this. The wavering but willing followers. They're the ones that need encouragement. They're the ones that aren't sure. They're the ones that no matter what Jesus says, they want more information. They're willing to follow, but at a distance, not completely. They still need encouragement, still need help. And then you've got this third group, those lukewarm and uncommitted majority. They're not going to finish the race. Now, there's a lot of you in this room. And I suspect that there's representatives from all three groups that I'm speaking to right now. There are some of you who are committed to Christ. No matter what you're called to do, you're prepared to do it. You already see that this world is not ultimately your home. You understand that your accomplishments will ultimately be meaningless relative to eternity. You understand that your wealth is a vapor. You understand that your life is not something that can be spent doing whatever you want. You have at least an inkling along the ideas that even if everything you wanted to attain according to your goals were met, that there would be a certain emptiness in it because at the end of the day, it is not eternal. And you're willing to say, no matter what, I will follow Christ and I will do what he calls me to do, even if it means that compared to others, I don't seem very successful. And then there are others of you who are sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, well, this is four years of my life that is going to be invested at a Christian college, and I am going to give four years of my life to allow God to convince me that he really is worth following. I'm going to judge all of the teachers and all the classes and all of the chapels, and I am going to decide whether or not what they have to offer and what he has to offer is worth giving myself over to. Otherwise, when I'm out of here, I'm out of here. And then I do believe there are probably some of you that are here for who knows why, but you're here. You don't want to be here. What I'm saying to you is not particularly helpful whatsoever. You are being taught this week in and week out, and it doesn't really have any impact on you because it hasn't pierced your heart, and you're really not interested in following it. You know what? I'm speaking to all of you, and Jesus is speaking to all of you, and his words are living and active and applicable to all of you. So I'm not worried about whether or not I'm going to find an audience for this, because no matter what you are, where you are, who you are, this applies to you. So we need to continue. He says to them, This is a hard saying because in your mind, these people are saying, not that this is a hard saying, who can listen to it, but literally, these words are offensive. They are harsh. Why would anyone accept them? The question is, why is the message offensive? Why is the gospel so offensive? I understand that many of you were away this last uh, week and you were engaged in local service and evangelism. And I suspect that many of you had an opportunity to carry on a a one-on-one conversation with somebody about the gospel. And at some point in that one-on-one conversation, it became clear to you that all of a sudden, this budding friendship suddenly went cold. And all of a sudden, we crossed a line. And all of a sudden, you went way too deep, way too fast, and they are not interested in talking about this anymore because they realize you're trying to convert them to your religion, or at least that's how they understand it. And so the question is, what makes our religion so offensive? And the answer is that it's exclusive. It's exclusive. It's one word. Exclusive. 
There is no other option. There is no other way. There is no other uh, alternative. And, that, and that, that fights against our nature. That, that's not just unbelievers in general. That's all of us because we have a sin nature. And in our fallen sin nature, you know what we want? We want alternatives. We want options. We want second chances. We want to we compare one avenue against the other. We want to have multiple ways out. We don't like the idea that there's one and one alone. And yet that's all that has ever been provided. When you think about it from that perspective, you say, what are the desires of the human heart? The desires of the human heart are to create idols that provide alternatives. I would rather soothe my conscience by pursuing work or family or charity or something else rather than deal with the real sin issue. Also, there are options. We say there must be some other way. It, it, it seems incredibly unfair that Jesus would restrict in His message and in His words and in His Gospel this one way, one truth, one life. We want multiple things. There was a book that came out about 15 years ago. And it was addressing this whole social idea that we were perhaps the first generation to have so many options before us in everything that we did every single day, from what we were to wear to what sort of coffee we were to have in the morning, that there was a phenomenon being noticed by people who were studying human behavior, and they called it this, selection fatigue. That you were actually getting tired and that by the end of the day, you were worn down because of all the options presented to you every day. I mean, some of us in this room are old enough to remember what it was like when we had televisions that were three-dimensional. They were cubes. They actually only had three channels. And you had to get up and physically walk and turn a physical dial that had, you know, other parts connected to the inside to turn it. And there were three options. And if there was nothing on, you just sat there and watched what you didn't want. We are now, in a few short years, in an entirely different universe. It is not even comparable. And listen, if you think that your idea, how, how you process information when it comes to options for entertainment, or options for food, or options for where to live, or options for how to travel, doesn't influence your idea of options for how to get to heaven, then you're fooling yourself. That is crushing you. And trying to live under the weight of the burden of trying to somehow allow for this exclusivity in a world of inclusiveness is going to mean that you're going to have to learn how to give that message to somebody in a way that's going to translate. I don't understand. I don't understand. No, you don't agree. Because of what I'm telling you flies in the face of everything. Not only your sin nature, but also your options. We want to believe there are second chances. There must be some other way. We want to compare ourselves against some other benchmark. But the reality is, Jesus says there is one way. It is exclusive. Now that's simply the message. I mean, he just says it very, very clearly. He says, the message is real, the message is simple, the message is offensive. But that's only the first verse. I really want to take it all the way down to verse 65. Because now that we understand that as a backdrop, you need to understand Jesus' response. It is so incredible. I mean, think about it for a moment. 
you have right there on your lap the written word of God, the actual verbatim copy of the words of the Son of God as he responds to people who are struggling with the difficulty of the message. Jesus is a winsome teacher. Jesus acknowledges that the message is offensive, but listen, it's not because Jesus himself is offensive. Nobody ever came to Jesus and said, we don't want to follow you because you are an offensive person. You are rude. You are arrogant. Uh, You are the kind of person who will not listen. You don't care about me. You don't love me. You're not interested in talking to me. I mean nothing to you. All you're trying to do is accomplish your goals. No one ever says that. They say it's your message that's offensive. That's what I hate. That's what I reject. And that's always been the case. And so here he is in verses 61 to 65, showing that he is the omniscient messenger. So the offensive message, the omniscient messenger. I'm going to read it all to you and then we'll break it down. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If there's one thing that stands out to me about Jesus' response is that he does not come off as somebody who is wounded, offended, hurt, put out, Here he is, the Son of God who ought to be worshipped. The Son of God who at any moment could have incinerated his enemies. The Son of God who should have been responded to as if he really was the Son of God and instead they're treating him like any other itinerant teacher and they're just kind of uh, comparing him. They're comparing his message against someone else's message. Same thing happens today. Now Jesus could have at any moment just said the word and they would all turn to dust and blow away, but he doesn't. He engages with them. There's no evidence of anger. There's no evidence of condescension. He doesn't lash out at them. What you have here is a question. A few short, clear statements. And his trust is in the power of the Father. And that's what's so critical here. Jesus trusts his Father. It says a lot about your impression of God when you consider how you pray to Him and what you ask of Him. I experienced this recently when our family was taking a trip and we were making our way from security over to the gate. And as we stood there at the gate, we were looking out at the aircraft that was going to take us away. And my son, who's 11, was standing beside me. And he says to me, uh, What are you looking at? And I said, well, that's our plane. And he said, oh, I didn't know we had a plane. And I thought, you think that I own that plane. At that moment, he became my favorite child. (laughs) 
because he honored me by the magnitude, the absolutely unrealistic, ridiculous magnitude of his impression of what I could provide. I almost felt like letting it go on for a little while. It felt really good. What else do you think we have? (laughs) Why do I feel that way? I feel that way because um, it feels good for people to think that you've got resources you don't have. Um, I was kindly introduced as one of the people who are in a group of individuals who were selected because of their wisdom and their wealth and their works. When I think about those three things, there's maybe a fourth category, like a clerical error, you know, and like somehow you got invited and they feel bad about sending you back. I don't know. <laughs> but it's certainly not the first reason. This idea that I had these resources was, was, was honoring to me because he thought so highly of me. And when I think about what is going on here, I think to myself, Jesus is showing honor to the Father by saying that the Father is capable of something that only God can possibly do, and that is draw people to saving faith. We need to understand that Jesus is demonstrating his confidence in the Father, not his discouragement in man. Because if all Jesus did was look at man, he would be very discouraged. When Jesus, at his greatest time of need, is in the garden, and after three years of ministry, of the twelve that he had that were left, one had turned him into the authorities and sold him out, and the other eleven vanished. If he was linking his ministry success to the way that men responded to him, he would have been absolutely despondent. But he never once flags in his confidence because his confidence is not in man, it's in the Father. And there's a massive difference there. And before we get really into that, I want to remind you that fear of man is probably the biggest battle you're going to face in the rest of your life. As you move on from this place and move out into the world and whatever God has for you, fear of man is going to be the thing that will dog you until your grave unless you overcome it. Until you can start realizing that it doesn't matter what men think of you, and I can say that to you young women here, I can also apply it to all of mankind, but as a father of a daughter, I always like to remind women It's of very little importance what men think of you, but it is also of very little importance what mankind thinks of you. Because if you're wrapped up in the fear of man, it's going to become a trap. I love Proverbs 29.25. Just write this down. Memorize this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. And we're laying snares and traps for ourselves all the time. You know what a snare was, right? snare was like a little lasso that they would hang along a pathway where they knew that rabbits and other small animals would run. And they would lay it down there in the opening of that little hole or in the opening along the way of that path, and the animal would run into it, and that little lasso would wrap around the neck and it would tighten. And the more that little rabbit struggled, the more that noose got tight. And the more that little bunny fought for its life, poor little bunny, the more that little bunny fought for its life, the more that thing got tighter and tighter until it suffocated it and killed it. The same thing happens to us if we have a fear of man. And until you cut that snare off in your neck, it is going to dominate you. John Bloom said this, 
the person to whom we ascribe most authority to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it, is the person we fear most because it is the person whose approval we want most. Students, whose approval do you want most? It's not wrong to be a good student. It's not wrong to be a good athlete. It's not wrong for you to have mentors and want to do well by them. I can speak to that myself right now. I'm here because it's one of the highlights of my year when I have the opportunity to get together with the the men who were described to you earlier, who are, to a man, absolutely committed to maintaining the integrity of this institution by whatever means necessary. They love you. They pray for you. They are always trying to strategize to how to provide you with the very best education that you can possibly have. And they understand that authority is not really something you wield in order to get things done. Authority is most often used and wisely used to stop things from happening that shouldn't. They are there to be that for you. And so as I join them, of course, I want them to think that I'm one of them. I want them to see that I'm working hard too. There is nothing wrong with wanting people to see that you're serious about what you're doing, but that's very different than allowing yourself to become afraid of what they think and living only for them. And so Jesus says, knowing in himself what his disciples were grumbling about. He said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He doesn't make it easier, he makes it harder. He says, are you offended? Well, if you're offended by my simple words, how would you feel if I then ascended back up into heaven? I mean, now I'm telling you that I came down from heaven. What if I went back up to heaven? Would that help? Would you believe me then? What's it going to be like when I go back? Is that going to convince you? The main point here is that they won't believe His words now. They're not going to believe after He ascends to the Father. Their hearts were impenetrably hard. Nothing was going to get them there except the Father. And we're going to talk about that in verse 65. He continues in verse 63 in one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You know what he's saying? He's saying to them, listen, if you get all wrapped up in the flesh part of it, Jesus said, I came, I had flesh. Jesus took on the flesh of fallen human beings with all the consequences of sin, having never sinned himself. He says, I am flesh. I bleed, I cry, I hunger, I can die. And when I say eat my flesh, drink my blood, that flesh itself is not going to save you. What it is, is the spirit that I give, the life that I give. And he says to them, as I'm speaking these words to you, just like I'm speaking them to you today, I'm speaking words of spirit and life. That those words are words that will awaken a soul, bring regeneration to somebody. It's happening right now. When I was young, there was a movie that came out called The Never-Ending Story. And uh, I used to watch that movie all the time. Because if you've ever seen the movie, you know that as a young kid, you're thinking, one day I will be Atreyu. I will be this hero. I will be this person. And you're just like, I love this story. I'm in it. And there's this point in the movie where this little boy who's reading the story, and you think he's reading the story, and then the events are happening, and they're showing you it all happened. At one point in the movie, the boy who's reading this book realizes that as he's reading it, the events are actually occurring. It's like this portal into another world. And he realizes that as he's reading it, 
he's living it, and they're living it, and it's all this intertwined thing, and it's very fascinating. And I remember walking away from that movie every time thinking, man, that is so cool. And then it dawned on me as I was preparing for this message, that's happening now. Jesus says these words are life. They are spirit. They are ministering to the immaterial part of you, and they will awaken you if you hear them. And even more powerful than that is once they've awakened you, it's all you need to awaken others. And so I want to encourage you this morning that as hard as the message is for people to understand, as hard as it is for them to believe and accept, there is no other alternative. Don't fall for this trick that if you just do it a different way, you're going to get a better result. Don't do it. Embrace what Jesus does here. He says, the flesh is no help. The words that I've spoken are spirit and life. He says that to Nicodemus. He says, listen, nobody knows how this comes. It's the spirit is like the wind. The wind goes where it will, and nobody can see it. Nobody knows why. What he's saying is that God brings that eternal life to those whom he's chosen. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. It's fascinating, isn't it? Just think about that for a moment. I mean, think about a celebrity, somebody who has a large following. Imagine if that person suddenly had all of their followers just disappear. They just dropped that person. They just walked away. You'd look at that and you'd think it's really strange. In fact, I can't really think of a time where that has happened. I mean, really, to imagine that somebody who is at the height of their popularity would have absolutely nobody at the end. There's always that lingering group. There's always the diehards. There's always the original group that that were the true believers at the beginning. And Jesus says basically to this group, look, you're all going to scatter. And I knew it from the beginning. It didn't change the way I loved you. It didn't change the way that I fed you and cared for you because I even knew who was going to betray me. Judas. Judas, from the very beginning, loved, taught, cared for, ministered to, trusted. You ever wondered about this, the fact that Judas was the treasurer? I think it says a lot about how Jesus viewed money. He let Judas be the guy in charge of the bank account. He says, I knew from the beginning, because at the end of the day, It's not about whether or not I love you enough for you to come to me. It's whether or not you have been called by the Father. Because he says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is why I told you that. You say, when did I tell you that? Well, if you look back over in John chapter 6, look at verse 37. He says to the people earlier in his sermon, all that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those are amazing promises. No one comes to me unless the Father draws, and when the Father draws, I will hold him. No one can. It's not a will, it's a can. No one's able. So listen, when you're going and if you're talking to people in your family or your friends or your neighborhood and you're talking about the Lord and the gospel and you're revealing this to them and you're wondering, how can I get through to them? What can I say? Let me encourage you that what you really need to do is pray that God would open up their eyes to the truth. Pray that the Father would move them into the place where they can know 
so that they will embrace and believe and follow. He knows that only the Father can change their desires. Jesus Christ Himself trusted the Father in all of His evangelism. If Jesus Christ trusts the Father when it comes to evangelism, then you and I need to trust the Father when it comes to evangelism. Now I have five implications and four minutes. Number one, we should expect the gospel to be offensive. Just just deal with it. Just accept it, embrace it, deal with it. It is going to be offensive. When you get to the point where you are proclaiming the gospel to somebody and you are saying there is one way, one truth, one life, you are going to find that it is offensive. That's the first implication. The second implication is this. We should not expect the messenger to be offensive. It's not your job to add to the offense. It's not like you say, well, the gospel is offensive, so I might as well really make it offensive. That'll work. Come on. It's not about that. It's about you saying, this is a glorious, wonderful message. Let me tell you what it did in my life. Let me show you in my life. Yes, it's hard to believe. Yes, it is hard to accept. Yes, it's going to cost you everything. But look at me. I am the kind of person who has given up everything and I'm happy. I'm not the guy standing up there holding a picket sign screaming at somebody across the street because of whatever lifestyle choice they have. I mean, do you really think that's winsome? Is that really going to cause people to follow you? Is that really going to cause them to listen to you? Are they going to look over at you screaming and yelling and think, oh, I really want what he's got? I mean, that person, they really seem to have the peace I'm looking for. They, if I could be anybody, I'd be him. Just a walking example of what I want to be. Come on. I mean, I heard an interview the other day on a podcast with this guy who is so totally Buddhist. Like, he's into Buddhist everything. He's a Buddhist everywhere. Like, his office is filled with Buddhas. He gives people Buddhas as gifts. Like, and he had the most winsome character. I mean, there was nothing offensive about this guy. I mean, he was so nice. He was like the nicest person that I'd ever listened to. And I thought, no wonder people might want to follow you and become a Buddhist. You're so nice. And your message is sending them to hell. If I can get that impression from somebody who's preaching a false message, imagine what you can do for somebody when you preach a true message. Don't become the obstacle. Number three, proof doesn't lead to faith. Let's just deal with that too. Proof doesn't lead to faith. I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. No, you don't agree. I could keep trying to help you understand and keep trying to give you more evidence and keep trying to tell you to read more books and listen to more sermons, but it's not that. Proof doesn't lead to faith. Faith comes from hearing, yes, but that ultimately comes from God Himself. Number four, this is a bit longer. The Holy Spirit, remember this, regenerates, indwells, seals, and fills the believer. Now the Holy Spirit, at one point when you are saved, will regenerate. John 3, 6 talks about this. Give you new life. The Holy Spirit indwells you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean don't smoke. Like that's what I was taught when I was growing up, right? Don't smoke. Why? Because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I was like, well, I thought it could kill me. Yeah, 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 but your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. What that really means is that your body, your, your physical body, this, this you right now is the, is the dwelling place of God. He indwells. He seals. Ephesians 1.13 means that until the very last day, you're safe eternally if He has purchased you and sealed you. But notice, He also fills. Ephesians 5.18 
Now, we're not commanded to be regenerated or commanded to be indwelt or commanded to be sealed. God does that. But we are commanded to be filled. And we're commanded to be filled because we're constantly depleting that filling of the Holy Spirit. I drive an old truck, 2004, F-150. It leaks oil. And I have the driveway to prove it. And so rather than going in for an oil change every 3,000 miles, I go in for like a top-up every 300 miles. And in some ways, I mean, that's how I am spiritually too. I'm constantly leaking the Holy Spirit. I'm constantly asking to be filled. I'm constantly asking to be given more. Constantly saying, Lord, help me, help me, help me. Let me be more effective and bear more fruit because you've filled. That's a good prayer to pray. And then finally, no one's going to be surprised or I should say, no one will surprise the Lord when they meet face to face. No one's going to surprise the Lord. No one's going to get there and he's going to say, wow, I didn't realize you believed the gospel. I was, I was not expecting you. He knows. Because the Father has called them. The Father has drawn them. The Father has given them the faith to believe. The Father, by the Holy Spirit, has regenerated them, indwells them, seals them, will fill them, protect them, and carry them on until the last day. As you heard a couple of days ago, the assurance of your salvation is the gift you carry with you through the rest of this life. Treasure it, cherish it, and let it be a motivation as you share the gospel with others. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time in your word this morning. Thank you for this powerful text and for preaching it, and then allowing it to be recorded that we might be able to repeat it. Oh God, I ask that you would do a mighty work in the hearts and the lives of these students who are in every respect entering into a world that is perhaps now more than ever ready to receive the message of the gospel because the resistance is so strong. Like a weightlifter getting stronger by pulling up something that they normally couldn't lift. May these students become spiritually strong as the resistance and the headwinds of a world that has now openly rejected all things related to their faith prepares to receive them, embolden them, cause them to dig deep into the knowledge of the truth, and then I pray that you would fill them with your spirit to speak it in a way that has a profound effect in this generation and until you return. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ.